2: Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Grace Clark, the marketing all star who helps companies translate their visions and values into high growth influencer programs, partnerships, and what she calls fun, why not out of homes. Grace is one of those unicorns who does strategy and implementation, having cut her teeth at Madewell and Darris, and now supporting brands like Jones Road, Graza, Curology, and Google. Welcome, Grace. Hi, Allie. It is so nice to be here. This is going to be a fun one. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> um, just so everyone understands my process, basically about a week before a guest comes on, I do a little bit of a deep dive and I noodle around in what they send me and any news and I look up brands and I, I just kind of do a little research and then I send a draft of questions to the guests, um, basically just saying this is a guide. It's not going to be verbatim and there's no gotchas. But if you want to think about these and not be sort of caught off guard and grace in true grace fashion um, answered in like full things and bullets, it's not meant to be like a a working doc, but of course (laughs) it is. And then, Later in the podcast, if you listen, I ask about a pie chart, which she drew and then took a picture of and then put into a Google Doc and sent me. Um, so that's going to be part of my life from now on. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really looking forward to this and all of the stuff that's in here. I just can't wait for everyone to listen to. Um, so welcome. Welcome.
3: <laughs> Thank you for having me. I think this is going to be really helpful for people. It's it's a good mix of conceptual marketing inspiration, but I think there's a lot of practical, tactical details in here.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, we need practical um, these days. But I want to talk about you a little bit and and your background because I I what I like teasing out is that. You know how there, I don't, I think you're too young, but there was this TV show and it was a guy and like his whole life was sort of informed by like the television shows that he watched as a kid. And I feel like as a very sort of 70s, 80s kid, like my whole, the way I think is like it's either an episode of the Brady Bunch, an episode of like Fantasy Island, something that I saw, you know, in the Magic Garden or Three's Company. And I feel like you are a little bit that way, but when it comes to magazines, like you're a magazine person. Um, It seems like that really was like part of your youth and your growing up. And, you know, you worked at Elle, you worked at Lucky, you worked at Town & Country, you worked at Allure. You know, it's clearly in your system. And I'm curious about A, how that kind of informed your thoughts about brand and I guess marketing more broadly, Um, but what foundation it kind of set in you as you kind of grew your career.
3: I got really lucky with the parents that I had. My mom was a school teacher and my father was a musician. Mm. So being the oldest child and being the only child for five years the foundational part of my days and my evenings was spent nurturing the idea that creativity is the way through anything and there is no bad question. So I developed this lifelong interest in creating expression of ourselves, of who we are. Mm -hmm. One of my earliest memories was Wanting to create a newspaper for that houses on my block, for my neighbors. And (laughs) I must have been four or five. And there are pictures of it now, but I drew a newspaper in crayon. And I, I had my mother photocopy it at the school that she worked at. And I went from house to house with my dad, giving everybody copy of the newspaper. And that's the first memory I have of being really interested in distributing information, right that information that, that people really want, that really matters, that gets to them on a day-to-day level. And my parents were great at provoking those types of thoughts in me. My dad, as a musician, would work at night. So we had the whole day to be together. He would take me to baseball games. Right. He would take me to the recording studio with him and I remember him pointing out billboards or asking me questions about a menu. If we were at a restaurant, he'd say, why is the sign that color? Or why do you think they used, why did they use that font? And those, those questions got me understanding that what we look at in our world can have a profound effect on the decisions that we make or how we choose to perform a part of our identity, mm-hmm. those things became really core. I spent my childhood writing letters to the Pleasant Company because they made American, <laughs> Girl, American Girl dolls and they didn't at that time have a soccer uniform and I played soccer. And I wrote to Baskin Robbins to suggest a flavor that right. was inspired by the St. Louis Blues, a hockey team. So this has been in my DNA. There is never a question ever that I was going to move to New York and I was going to work in media. It has been that every single day. I literally
1: just got chills. (laughs) No, I did. Cause I feel like, you know, it is like a character, you know, there, there are people that are like, first of all, I think the way that you describe your parents is perfect because you have like this creativity on one side and then you have like the, just constantly asking questions on the other. And that actually, if there was like a Venn diagram of you, that would make sense, you know, because you are hyper creative. But I think the thing that I get the most from you is just, you are so curious. It's, you know, and, and then, I mean, what's exciting is then you take all those questions and you morph them into a plan and then you help people execute the plan, which is really, really cool.
3: Right, right. I mean, that started when I got my first internship. It was at L and you mentioned magazines and that was Mm -hmm. the early part of my professional life. I moved to New York with an internship, but no money and no job. I moved the day after I graduated from college and Mm -hmm. started interning at L. I got the internship because I wrote an email to someone and said, I'm visiting New York on spring break. Please let me meet with you. I'm going to be your intern. I'm going to be the best intern you ever had. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I think persistence in that oldest child. Yeah. I was going to say that and sounds it,
1: like an oldest
3: child. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. And it paid off, but it taught me that asking has no downside except being told no. Mm-hmm. And I'm made my way through L. My first job was at town and country and I was the first ever assistant to the creative director. And I started the magazine's first website. There wasn't a website. I made a Tumblr. That's amazing. Right? There was no oversight because there was no website. So I had flexibility to do something with the 164 years of archives at what I consider to be one of the most storied magazines. And then from there, I started working at Allure. Like you mentioned, I was editing the blog and I started the first cultural beauty column, and my first marketing job wasn't made well, and I was the first ever content hire, the first person dedicated to storytelling on platforms that weren't their ecom site.
1: Yeah, I was gonna ask what did what did that mean at the time? like, a, what year was made well? and what did content mean
3: then? Content wasn't called content, and right. my job title might have been social media editor. I should go find the application because it would just be really interesting to see how 11 years ago the mm-hmm. job I have now was talked about. This was 2012. Right. And I, I there was really, no Instagram. I mean that was the year Instagram came on.
1: Exactly that.
3: Yeah. I got hired because I knew how to tell a story like a magazine. Yeah. And my job was do something with this blog. The the conversation was not turn these channels into a revenue stream. It was Working for people who had the good sense and the foresight to think, I think there's something here with this mm-hmm. blog thing. And I think our Twitter could do something for us. We don't know what, but we want to invest in figuring it out. And that was the luckiest moment. Madewell was like working at a startup that had the infrastructure and the archival knowledge of J. Crew. Mm-hmm. But also, I was working a bit upstream because I was advocating for ideas that were counter to what J.Crew had built its brand off of, which was hyper polished editorial. J.Crew is the the godfather of brand catalogs. And I was working on channels that needed to move a bit quicker, Uh needed to be more trend responsive and really needed to be more influenced by the data we were getting on a day-to-day basis. I was looking at traffic reports for the blog rather than number of orders placed from a catalog that took three months to produce. So right. I was really learning how to teach and how to advocate for things that felt almost, I think to some people, maybe like a waste or like a loss center. I was trying to produce social media shoots with no budget, right? helping people to see the value of this. And content then meant Make sure that we are filling our Twitter feed with interesting content. Make sure we're reposting everything to Pinterest. Create something on Instagram that's intriguing and don't take too many risks. And don't spend too much money. (laughs) Yeah, and don't spend too much money. I
1: want to go back to, you know, this idea of a loss center. Um, And I think marketing in general, I was just talking to someone, I think I might have mentioned this on another episode, but I had a really good conversation with someone who works at a recruiting agency. And she was saying that basically, you know, 18 months ago, everyone and their mother wanted like sales and quote unquote growth and marketing. And now companies are like, you know, and it's all about ops and finance. And I feel like, you know, Courtney and I joke that, you know, marketing kind of the minute that, the go-go years, you know, kind of come to a little bit of an end, marketing somehow starts to look um, frilly, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's certainly not. I think we know that. But I guess, you know, when you can't directly trace what you're doing to a clear ROI, but you're trying to build a feeling and you're trying to build a community, and you know that it is a long-term investment, I have a feeling that you've done a lot of that over the course of the last, you know, 11 years. Mm -hmm. And I just would love your general thoughts on marketing in general, right now, considered to be, you know, especially for emerging brands, especially for those of us that are focused on retail, it's very hard to say this thing made our velocity, this, Mm -hmm. or, you know, this party or this, whatever, you know, um, Mm -hmm. partnership, but how, how do you like to frame it? I guess in the context of, you know,
3: ROI, it's so hard to attribute so, so much so that, some of the most successful partnerships I've had with companies are when we are very aligned that we are maybe looking for signals of success in the wrong place. And Mm -hmm. there's always going to be some way to know if something is working. It takes defining that and operating with hypotheses and running your marketing almost like a series of experiments Mm -hmm. rather than Investing in particular initiatives, expecting that you are going to see an uptick here or there. And what I mean by that is understanding that when you're in a challenge environment or a constricted economic situation like we're in right now, marketing is going to look a little bit different. And I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. I talked to some marketers who are really defensive when marketing gets challenged. And I wish they would be a bit more open-minded and realize that in those moments that feel a little bit quieter, that's when marketing gets to continue to evolve. To me, that's really exciting. Uh So with my clients, I shift the focus away from direct attribution and instead look at what we can do to build a foundation that will pay off in three months or in six months and continue to shift our focus further down. I'm really glad you mentioned what it looks like to have something that might pay off in the future because mm-hmm. there are a few tenets of good marketing that to me are unchanged no matter what might be going on contextually or culturally. Right. And the first is that your audience is your biggest asset. And this is proven true if we look at creators or people who have direct relationships with their audience. They've always known this those people will be with you through the launch of a product that doesn't go the way you want. Or right. if, you're a, if you're designing clothing for people to wear, a collection that just doesn't move the needle the same way. If you plan for the inevitable ups and downs, your team and your marketing is going to be much more resilient if you actually anticipate those things and get comfortable with failing and build a muscle of resilience. Granted, when you're looking at a P&L, And forecast on a day-to-day level, Mm -hmm. it can feel really scary. But if you're going to play the game, that's the most realistic perspective to take. And then the other is something you and I have talked about.
1: I want to go back to audience for one second though. I don't want to like cut you off on two yet, but I want to talk about like defining audience because I think that there is a, and I am clearly biased here. So, you know, grain of salt, but people mistake awareness for audience. Mm. at least in my estimation. Mm -hmm. People think like, oh, this thing went viral. Now we have this big audience. I think me coming from brick and mortar, when I saw my brick and mortar customers buy on Fresh Direct and it sold out, or I saw them posting about when they moved out of town during COVID and found it in their local Whole Foods and remembered their cooking class. Like to me, that's audience. Email is audience. Mm -hmm. True followers, perhaps, are audience. But I'd love your definition because I think it's more intimate than maybe we have been thinking it is for the last couple of years. And I think people probably overestimate their audience.
3: Such a good point. There is a big difference between audience and awareness the same way that I try to help companies realize there's a difference between traffic to your channels and qualified demand, to use a real marketing term. People understanding you and knowing you exist doesn't necessarily translate to a sale or positive word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And like you said, assuming that just because you have a certain number of people on your email list is going to influence your number of sales in a certain direction, not everybody who knows about you is going to be a customer of every product. Mm -hmm. When we think about retention, we have to make some general assumptions around lifetime value. But what does lifetime value actually mean when more brands are entering competitive spaces? And when the emotional or quite literal cost of switching for a customer from one to another is really low. Right. Brands should shift from thinking about retention to reacquisition. And it sounds like a semantic change, but if we say it enough to ourselves. No, it makes sense.
1: Well, it's like a romance. It's like, instead of I got to keep my marriage going, it's I got to make this partner want to marry me again and again and again and again.
3: Yes, that's exactly it. Thanks. And Yay. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> think about what you just said about the way that you saw the world around you changing, moving through COVID, and how you responded to the way people were going to shop with you and engage with you. We are not static people. Mm-hmm. Our needs from brands and products are not static, so companies should not be static. And right. Thinking about lifetime value and hanging on to a customer, if we can do something that might feel a bit unscalable or might feel like a question mark, a loss center, something that we're trying as an experiment, if we can make sure that we are super serving the people who have been there since the beginning and knowing that they're going to come back and maybe leave for a bit, but come back, we're really playing a long game. And if Mm -hmm. we want a great outcome, if we are looking for a big event as a founder, if we are looking for customers that are going to be more community than transactional relationships, Mm -hmm. being comfortable playing the long game doesn't have to be expensive. It just has to be an emotional investment. Yep. No, I think that's awesome.
1: Okay. That was number one. I interrupted your audience is your biggest asset. Then
3: you had another one. I do. One other thing that I can't emphasize enough is investing time and studying your customer and your people. I thought I had the answers for the first four or five years of my career and realized that not only was I wrong, but I was putting myself in a bubble. So instead, I shifted my focus from just studying how other brands market to actually studying my consumers as people. Their identity is the space that I got to play in. The Mm -hmm. type of person they got to become when they were wearing something from Madewell or when they were using curology right. is what I needed to understand because that would help inform product roadmap, that would help inform things like CS, that helped me understand what trends felt like something we should participate in and what we should sidestep. But building that data diet is now part of what I leave every client with, no matter how long I work with them. It is a list of how they can do social listening, the Reddit forums they need to monitor once a month, once a week. Mm -hmm. It is the blogs that they need to read. And it's a really practical way for them to efficiently, without spending too much time, understand the context of their customers because it does not come to us sitting behind the screens of a laptop as much as I wish it did. And sometimes it can exist in things like spending time in TikTok comments, but actually making sure we get out of our bubble and then sharing those learnings with the team has been one of the through lines in the teams that I work with that are successful when they make that curiosity a habit and actually not homework, but something that they share and teach each other. So we can talk all about the practice that I put in place called development days or the ways that we actually turn insights into marketing plans. But it is so important to get out of our bubble and actually listen to the people that we are to make something for us.
1: So it's funny because I had Greg Lorenzo on who had, you know, he was the CMO at Super Coffee and now he's, you know, bringing this um, Swedish plant based cheese to America and as a marketer. And he's an insights guy too. And he was saying that he would spend days with, um, you know, consumers, you know, in the morning their routine, where they went, you know, I'm like, how'd they, like, how'd they let you do that? But, yeah. you know, over the course of, you know, cause he came from the world of Dozeki's and, you know, and activations basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting out of your bubble, you know, I mean, I think, I think we do a, a pretty good job of this because I think we do ask a lot of questions and I make sure to have like quarterly meetings or, you know, Kind of fireside chats with anybody on our email list who wants to just talk to me, mm. um, and and I ask them questions, obviously, and they ask me questions, and sometimes we do a little cooking class, sometimes we don't. But how do you
3: how do you know that you're really listening? There are two real indicators that that intense curiosity and listening is actually translating into something that's worth your time. Okay. Before I would ever suggest to a team or to myself that I spend time doing it, it's making sure that I know what I'm going to get out of it. So the preparation is such a big part of it. I always start by understanding what needs to be true for a company so that I can Mm -hmm. stay focused on what is actually going to drive it forward. Usually a team or a founder will have something really clear in mind. They'll help me understand that they want to be in a position to launch into a certain market, or they're really interested in seeing more contribution from their existing customers. Once I understand what reality I need to help create as a marketer, the rest just unfurls like a ribbon. And then knowing that you're really listening ends up looking like how much truth can I get from the widest set of people that matter? How can I make sure that I am not being biased? The simplest formula is talk to as many people as I can in 10 minute increments to be extremely efficient. Make sure that I'm only looking at 10 to 15 different places for data mm-hmm. regularly and then synthesize it and then The next time I'm repeating this process, feed some of those insights back to the people I talk to and say, am I learning this right? This Mm -hmm. became really clear to me when I started what I now call my Gen Z roundtable. And this was Mm -hmm. totally born out of fear of obsolescence. This was 2019 and musically had become TikTok. Mm
0: -hmm. And I
3: suddenly realized I was not the youngest, coolest person in the room anymore. Mm -hmm. And... I was panicked. So I got... It's such a,
1: by the way, it's wonderful not to be the youngest, coolest person in the room anymore. That shit that sailed for me like 25 years ago. But I will say it's very liberating. You just get to be not the youngest or the coolest and you get to just like be in the room and see how it all goes down. It's a lot less pressure. Someone said to me, like, I love the grandmotherly advice or something on LinkedIn. I'm like, I don't know if I've painted myself as a grandmother, but like, I'm not quite there, but thank you. Um, But, you know, I mean, that is sort of my, my, I am older for this, for this group. So yeah, but that's just my little side note to you.
3: Part of what you're saying is so true though. They're different sides of the same coin. And I think that when people have been in an industry and have experience, it's a lot of earned confidence. Mm -hmm. And what I now feel I offer in conversations when I'm talking with people much younger than me is I know what questions to ask and they help give the information to fill in the gap. So we need all of it. And I find it's really validating to be someone who gets sent resumes to look at or gets asked for advice. It's, I think there's so much value in reinforcing what we know by teaching it. So getting to spend time with these kids has been really helpful. It was so panicky to see the volume of video content as a marketer who was so used to static assets, and it was the biggest wake-up call, I was working at Daris, which is a PR agency Mm -hmm. that represents... Jesse
1: came on. like I think he was like my fifth episode. Yeah, Yeah. it
3: was a great episode. I mean, talk about luck in my career. I had Mickey Drexler take a chance on me without Mm -hmm. ever having a marketing job. Jesse hired me to build a content division for his (laughs) agency with no agency experience. I just got so lucky and I knew that I couldn't let any of those teams down. And part of that meant investing my own time and money in this Gen Z round table. I couldn't sell that product to a client. We didn't have a Gen Z practice. And frankly, we weren't building video content, but getting people who are younger than me together once a month became the most fulfilling Mm. Part of my study of marketing, but also it really helped me realize that it is okay to not be the youngest person in the room. And that's how I started to build my practice of listening. What I realized is getting five people together on a call once a month or in person, this was before the pandemic, and actually showing them tweets about Gen Z and asking for them to talk about it was (laughs) the most effective thing because it helped me realize oh, the way I was going to go about this conversation didn't make a whole lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Let me give them something to react to and they're going to talk. So that became something that I've done every month with the exception of maybe two or three months since the summer of 2019. And now it's expanded. It's actually something I do with brands and sometimes companies will say, we'd like to license that. Please keep it private. Do it for us for six months and actually use this as a feedback channel. Build us a Slack of 20 people. From different colleges across the country and let our marketers put concepts in front of them and Mm. pressure test it. It's totally fun. And I think the sweet spot is in the way I recruit and then moderate these conversations. That's very cool. It's become wonderful. And leaning into the fact that I'm older is really great. They think I'm the biggest loser on the planet. They cannot believe that I want to talk to them and ask questions. But now I have a network of four or 500 that's amazing college credits across the country yeah it's know, i great. have five gen z children you really um, have it built in yeah
1: um they actually like gen xers it's interesting it's really? like this, the gen yeah the generations skip a little bit yeah. um i'm gonna take a quick break because i realized that i haven't yet and then we're <laughs> gonna come back because i think you have a third a third star I do. Um, okay we'll be right back
2: with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Grace Clark. Um, Okay,
1: we were talking about all sorts of things, um, And we're going to get right back into it. So before we had the break, we were talking about your audience is your biggest asset and investing the time in really listening and building systems and and processes around listening um, so that you start to know what what you're asking and start to get really good feedback on it.
3: And then I cut you off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the third thing I want everyone to know is the importance of building – a flywheel for their marketing and not a funnel. Did Courtney show
1: you my, my picture?
3: She did. I love it. Yeah.
1: Just everyone. FYI, I was working on a deck and I've been trying to like draw this, this thing in my brain for months. And then I had a conversation with grace and she said, flywheel, not funnel. And then all of a sudden, I was able to draw my flywheel. I also totally copied you. I was interviewed on
3: a podcast <laughs> like
1: last week and it'll come out. And I actually, I did give you credit cause I said it and she was like, Ooh. And I was like, yeah, not, not mine. Just, Just to be totally clear. No, take it and run with it. No, no, no. I totally, totally like (laughs) tagged you, um, which I will do on LinkedIn when when it's published. But anyway, I love this. You're not building a funnel. You're building a flywheel. And tell me what
3: you mean. Okay. The easiest way to think about this is visually. Imagine a triangle in your mind, but invert it. So the point is at the bottom. Mm -hmm. We think about marketing like if we stuff enough potential customers in the top, we'll get some people coming out the bottom who've bought our product and we'll hopefully stick around and buy our product again. That is so risky because Mm -hmm. that means that we are hanging on to dear life for the people at the bottom at the same time that we're focusing mostly on acquisition marketing, just hoping and playing a game of chance. Mm -hmm. The most efficient shift we can make is instead think about a circle that just continues around itself, a big spiral. Mm -hmm. And along the outside of the circle are different points of entry. One is Instagram. The next might be influencers and creators. And the next might be PR and articles that appear in the media. The next Mm -hmm. might be cooking classes and experiential. And the other might be walking through the Whole Foods aisle. Imagine new customers coming in at every single point and they are happy enough that they continue to deliver strong word-of-mouth marketing or they also bring in other happy customers. But if you are focusing on retention marketing enough in an efficient way, those people stay going around that circle Mm -hmm. and just continue to hear about your company or continue to interact with it on other channels wherever they are. It really reduces the reliance on any one particular channel, which is especially important at a time where so many companies... Are wanting to shift their spend away from facebook or meta right. and one thing that your team does so well is build growth through organic marketing you don't have the problem of being overly reliant on paid but when people do the shift to make is to spend three months getting really comfortable taking away some of that budget right. and instead optimizing for the group chat. Making sure that your marketing and your brand is helpful and valuable enough Mm -hmm. that people will recommend it when you're not in the room, which is, back to your point, hard to attribute and hard to keep track of. But that endorsement when you're not there is the strongest one you can get.
1: Yep. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it it really speaks to what I like about you in particular. It's almost like founder product fit in a way. It's like Mm -hmm. grace marketing fit in the sense that you were in a very analog world that you took into digital and then you were in a in a digital world that you had to figure out like what the heck you know content meant mm-hmm. and what all these new channels were and now in a way you know i know we all have to be omnichannel yada 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 but the reality is is i think everyone's kind of figured out that grocery brands are still grocery brands for the most part. And that means we have to be in grocery stores and retail distribution. You know, I've said this on the podcast a few times. I had many people tell me at some point that um, my business wasn't that interesting to them because I didn't have a robust direct to consumer channel.
3: Hmm.
1: This was before COVID. And I just remember being like, but I'm not getting into houses across America with a refrigerated sauce in a pouch that you have to buy a six pack of to even try it. Yeah. But with, with direct to consumer, like we will have products that will work on that channel, but this is not that. So, does every product need to make every channel work? That would be like saying every product you make should be able to be at Erewhon and at Walmart. Right. And I just, and now on Amazon. I I just, I don't think that's the case. Um, But I do think that, again, going back to you, now we're back into this, how do you take all of the learnings from the, the, the years of digital and, you know, people discover digitally, they engage digitally, of course it's a very real thing, and then apply them to, you know, in real life, in store, point of sale, you know, the marketing at the shelf, the experience of the product, the packaging, you know, all of that, and then drive them back out to more learnings digitally. And, and I guess that's kind of the flywheel that we've been focused on that mm-hmm. I wasn't really able to draw. You know, what is that relationship between the content that you're making, the community that you're building, and the product? And how do they all inter you know interact with each other? And how do they all keep
3: people coming and coming and coming again? That is the question that a good marketer is going to help you solve. Yeah. I mean fun-
1: yeah.
0: Fundament-
3: yeah. fundamentally, there are just a handful of basics that people should bring to the table when they're trying to figure out simply. How to be more effective when the marketing mix can be more complicated than ever, especially Mm -hmm. because if you're running a company, you are driven and you are probably motivated by what's going on around you. And it's really easy to look around and feel like everybody else Mm -hmm. is at a big party that you're not at. If everybody's at expo and you don't have a big booth or everybody seems like they're producing video content on TikTok Mm -hmm. three times a day and you're not that competition is really hard to get over. But once you do, I think what's left is a focus on what simply works for you. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, the best companies almost at any stage are the ones that over invest in the stuff that works disproportionately well. Mm -hmm. And that is not the same for every company, but to your point, it's not the same for every channel either. What, what one company might get quote unquote from being really present on TikTok might be a completely different audience that is engaging with them over email. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. I think getting comfortable with reality is probably very helpful for people rather than trying to force force insights to come out of a certain place or force channels to perform in a certain way. So keeping the mix exceptionally simple is so effective. It's really scary, but it's really effective. And yeah. when I start with a company, if they're early stage, pre-series A, if we can nail three or four organic channels right. and if we're involved with paid have it be pretty effective and simple and use it for testing. That is the sweet spot. We are gonna get the most out of our efforts and our team is not gonna feel burned out. And that is so important.
1: It's true with sales too. And I think that people are finally starting to really think of, you know, for a minute, omnichannel meant no channels. Everything was just one big freaking channel. Right. right. Now right. I think people have gone back to, okay. You know, again, people who listen to this have heard me say it, but, you know, Target is a very different animal than an Erwan, which is a different animal than Whole Foods, which is different from, you know, Wegmans. And each one of those things, you have to identify, is this an experiment, as you said? Is this a volume driver? Is this a marketing channel? You know, what is the purpose of this channel? in sales. I think it's also honestly true for SKUs. Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
1: for those of us that have a platform of some sort, or even just like a variety of SKUs. I mean, I had, I don't know if you heard Justin from Bachan on here a few weeks ago. He's like, I looked at Cholula, I looked at Hines, I looked at Hellman's and I'm like, I'm going to have a hero, one juicy, beautiful hero. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And I mean, there is, a, there is a discipline and a simplicity and just, you know, a, a, it's, it's beautiful when it works, right? But, you know, if you are going to have more than that, you know, I remember when we were in the Chobani incubator, you know, they're like, it always goes back to 80-20 a little bit. You know, they're like 80% of our sales are blueberry yogurt. The rest of the 20% of sales are this constant innovation sort of pipeline to Mm -hmm. keep people excited and to keep our shelves looking interesting, right? Because you can't just have a shelf of (laughs) 10 blueberry yogurts, although, you know, arguably, the others were not margin accretive for the most part, right? Right. And so it's, I think this is one of those, to, to your point about, you know, the time that we're in, you know we've been talking about going line by line in your P&L going line by line in your assortment going line by line in your channels and really making sure not everything has to necessarily be a big money maker but everything should have a purpose totally yeah yes groovy
3: it's so true it's so true and i think Underneath that, to me, is the practice of asking why and then asking why again and again and again. And building that muscle in every single person on the team from the top to the bottom, from side to side, just pays dividends for their entire career, the entire time that you're all working together. And if people can understand that by the time they are Throwing out an idea, they've diligenced it and can at least say, and here's how I think this would drive the business. Mm -hmm. That is the best way to de-risk a marketing operation so that marketing starts to understand what it means to drive velocity in retail or what it means to support a product expansion. Asking why is the most powerful thing. It can be really scary and it can be vulnerable, but something I admire so much in your team is goes back to what I saw with my mom, that Hmm. when people have an idea, the comfortability to share Mm -hmm. and to say, and here's why I'm thinking about it, or here's what I don't know yet about it, but I wanted to share it with the group is so powerful. It creates so much trust. And I think when we're moving as quickly as teams are these days, it's so important to know that everybody is operating at their highest caliber, but with comfortability yep. and with trust. And that mm-hmm. means that when someone makes the decision to say, we are going to keep our marketing to four channels, we're going to have three SKUs, and they are going to be our bread and butter for two years, that decision is made thoroughly and the team gets really on board with it. Right. Or it means when someone says, we're running an experiment, 60 days, we're going to grow our TikTok following by producing two videos a day. Our hunch is that we're going to get to 25K followers. Are we all in on the experiment? People are more likely to understand why something's happening and not feel like it's so much work, especially right. when everything gets framed as like, this is probably going to drive our business. What do you think? It's right. It's so helpful. Yeah. No, I'm lucky
1: because I think everyone on our marketing, you know, we don't have, in a way, no offense to anyone out there, but we don't have traditional marketers. Right. You know, we have people who grew up in CPG marketing, which is different because it always goes back. It's like we never had the luxury of, you know, just building awareness because it, our, 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 everything we did had to tie back to a, a, almost a store, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think, you know, I've talked about it, like, it can be frustrating at times, because, you know, we'd love more awareness, <laughs> you know, I don't mm-hmm. know, who wouldn't. But then, you know, we're always sort of like, well, maybe it's better. I mean, even when I had Ross from Daring on, you know, he did this big thing with Kourtney Kardashian and Travis Mm -hmm. I guess. And Mm -hmm. he was saying, you know, he wished almost that they had waited until they had more distribution and they're in 14,000 stores. Right. You know, like you don't want these things to fall flat. Right. Um, But I wanted to ask you about something that you said and apply it directly to Graza because I love this why, why, why. Um, And I also think that they had a pretty impeccable launch. Mm-hmm. I mean, they came out like with a beautiful bang. He, you know, from my understanding, they went, you know, pretty quickly from D to C into retail. So they did not waste any time using the momentum of D to C to like segue that into a really strong retail launch. You know, those bottles were everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I'd love just a, a a really sort of like case study almost to the extent that you can share of how you use your sort of why, why, why method to help them launch.
3: That company is such an unbelievable example of what happens when you focus on making the next right decision, when there are Mm -hmm. 20 things you could be doing, staying true to the core of your business. First of all, from start to finish, you get the right ingredients as a marketer. When you have a Graza, you have a product that people use regularly. Mm -hmm. You have a really incredible product. Like what comes out of that bottle is so good. And I was not an olive oil person the same way. I wasn't a denim girl before I started working at Madewell, but Mm -hmm. a good product can convert you. Mm -hmm. And you also have a great design in the form factor, those squeeze bottles, but You have the design of a team like Gander that understands how to make a product stand out on shelf but how to make something enjoyable to use so that people feel cooler in the kitchen or more confident. So you automatically have a product that you know people will care about.
1: Yep. Yeah, and it does go back to how, you know, when you were saying who am I when I wear X or Mm -hmm. when I use Y, right? Like I think what Graza did incredibly well was they – they made everyone feel like a chef,
3: you know, buy those bottles. Yeah. Yeah, they did. And there's a reason why people now buy Graza and then if they can't for some reason, refill it quickly, they'll refill it with a different olive oil. Like people Mm -hmm. really like the experience of using that bottle, but I think they like being part of the Graza community. And that's partly because as we were building launch we had to be really effective. For example, we're working with a product that is natural. So we can't just make more of it when you run out and when you're shipping overseas, because all of that olive oil comes from Spain and it is unblended. So there is no such thing as getting more when it's gone, it's gone. So we had marketing plans that we completely had to scrap because we simply could not not support the product. And that meant the company got really good at arbitrage and looking for other places that we could show up that would generate excitement, but honestly, not too much excitement. Because as you know, being sold out is not the blessing that people think it is. (laughs) It's not a fun press headline. It is not a fun moment. It is a lost sale, but it's also a lost relationship that you can have. So in order to really support that launch, we decided that content and community we were going to be the way that we set ourselves up for the most success in retail. And we were going to treat everything as equally valuable marketing, even if we couldn't connect it to anything. And that meant treating small businesses as creators and influencers and seeding mm-hmm. to pet stores and kids' toy stores. It meant making sure every home chef who had a following and community that trusted them had one of those precious bottles that we were mm-hmm. afraid to part with. It meant talking to everyone. And wisely, the founders really trust their team. So I think they viewed their team, me included, as influencers, as ambassadors. And they were so excited for me to get on a podcast and talk about them the same way that they were excited about the person running their social, bringing bottles to dinners, to group dinners, to bring them to other founders, to share Grazo with the other companies we were working for. And at the same time, they made the decision to keep the assortment really simple mm-hmm. so that people would fall in love with one thing and know that like they're gonna get that quality no matter what right yep yeah
1: and what what kind of questions did you ask like when at what point did they come to you and
3: what what was your first meeting like the first conversation we had was so remarkable uh, it was the it was in my consulting journey I was about Two years into it, it was the first time I met two founders who had a marketing quote unquote problem that I knew I had to help solve. It was going to be the job of part one of the jobs that I would remember from my life. And that's because they had a clear vision on what they wanted to build. They knew in 10 years what the business could look like. Mm -hmm. They had committed to doing this right and they knew that marketing could not solve a lackluster product experience Mm -hmm. so they knew that they would use me like lighter fluid to generate demand for something that they knew was going to quote unquote work and our conversation was really daydreamy and it was immediately a brainstorm and it was not about here's how we want to launch it was more let's make sure we're good creative partners because if we join forces we are going to be in for a very bumpy ride with inventory constraints, launches are are like construction projects. You never know what's going to (laughs) actually, what's going to come through on a certain timeline. So we figured out if there was a good fit as partners. And I knew that if the product was great, if they were as curious and open and trusting as they were, and I knew how to get a product from launch to retail, I knew that there was just no way it wasn't going to work. And I changed travel to work with them I've, I it was exactly the type of job that any marketer would just dream to work on
1: yeah no it feels like it and I mean you're it's funny because knowing you now you I can see your like fingerprints on it that feels you know? so
3: cool to hear yeah, yeah. It's,
1: it's very cool okay so now if you're an emerging brand and you you don't have a you um, what are some of the questions that you know the why why why? what are some of the questions that you want brands that, that we can do without a, you, um, to do, to ask, you know, what, how would you sort of say, here's my little mini playbook of virtual me, and here's how to get me inside your brain as a brand.
3: Well, I've had to answer that for myself as a consultant in order to communicate how I work with people. So I'm very glad you asked because (laughs) I now have a great answer to this. There are three different things a company needs to work on in order to make their marketing more effective, whether or not I'm working with them. Because when I'm working with a company, what they're really hiring me to do is teach them how to think differently. Mm -hmm. No one wants me to be there to generate value while we're in the same room talking. They want to build a sort of money minting machine. So by the time I'm gone, they're just continuing to scale. So mm-hmm. the first thing we do is set up a healthy operational foundation. It's three things. It's we're going to switch to measuring our performance to forecast rather than hindsighting. Mm-hmm. We are going to create our marketing plans rooted in context, culture. That means SEO, social listening, consumer insights, everything we talked about. And then the third thing is we are constantly going to be optimized for learning, and experimenting. So Mm -hmm. each quarter or each month, we're going to pick a new marketing initiative to lightweight try and make sure that we are never falling behind but never getting inefficient. Then from there, it's everything in the middle that is the icing on the cake of what good marketing is. We always ask ourselves, what are consumers saying? What are they actually saying? What are the complaints? And if anyone wants to get into how chat GPT can be really valuable in synthesizing these insights that's a big thing i'm working with some of my companies on the other is where are the small moments for optimizing every single thing we do so we will go through every piece of marketing every consumer flow every customer journey and look at what we can do to make it a little bit stronger like Mm -hmm. two examples of that yeah If we're Graza and we're sending out an email, it's a monthly series about cooking hacks and tips. One easy way to introduce ourselves to a target brand partner or to support someone we love is to actually use that content space to talk about that brand or to direct our community who's really engaged to the Hexclad site, for example, Mm -hmm. or to say, this cookbook is launching. They're friends of ours. We got you early access. Here's where you can pre-order it. Mm -hmm. Using your own existing content to get on the radar of someone is just a really generous way to sort of lead by giving in your marketing. And it's Mm -hmm. also a way to show your customers that you're a discovery engine for them. Mm -hmm. Especially if you have one product or two products, content is how you're going to continue to add value. But do it in a lightweight way. Don't produce more than people need. Content's exhausting. And I'm Mm -hmm. a content person, so produce less. Then the other thing people can ask themselves is how can an initiative support acquisition and retention? Not that everything needs to, but chances are there is a way for any initiative, any piece of content to be relevant to someone who's just learning about you and helpful for someone who is already a customer or already in your world. And approaching that sort of, using that framework to approach any sort of marketing initiative, very helpful.
1: So can you give me an example of something from any brand?
3: Oh yeah, of course. So one relevant and recent example, Well, will call, let's do Graza because I think okay. that's a really helpful one. Okay. When we are putting out content on Graza's blog, for example, the blog is just the largest and most complete expression of a piece of content, but we do that so that we can distribute it across as many channels as possible. It is not because we expect people To hang out and spend time on a website, we want to be able to reach them where they are. Mm -hmm. So to that end, if we're creating a recipe that's going to live on the blog, beyond that, we're going to have the recipe developer or creator film a video talking about what it's like to cook in their kitchen and use a certain type of equipment or talk about their approach while they're using Graza, while they are making a recipe. And that recipe can be really valuable to someone who we know who has demonstrated over the last year of Graza's life that they love cooking savory dishes. Mm -hmm. But that's also education that gives someone who's never heard of Graza tips about how to cook in a small kitchen in an apartment without having to purchase yep. from the brand.
1: No, it makes so much sense. I think this is what Courtney is the absolute superstar at, which Completely. is it's, it's, the way I think about it is like, you've got the lemon, get as much juice out of it as possible. So totally. especially with content, it should be slice and dice and, and it should be to your point, it should be introducing people to the brand, but then also going that level deeper of like really giving them whatever it is that you your brand promise is, which, you know, in our case is also education. Totally. So I totally get that. Okay. Keep going.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you like hit the nail on the head that the best thing you can do is make every initiative work as hard for you as possible. Mm -hmm. If you are approaching brand partnerships, then also understand that it doesn't need to just be a giveaway. It can be a content swap, or you can Mm -hmm. actually approach a brand and use them as a way to add newness to your e-com packages. If you're interested in testing whether a sort of surprise and delight or gift with purchase helps people continue to stay with you, work with another brand and give them exposure, but also choose something that's really helpful for you. One thing we did with Graza recently for Valentine's Day was include a Hugh Kitchen chocolate bar, Mm -hmm. in the first 2000 uh, 2000 e-com orders that went out in the month of February just to say thanks. And that was not anything other than Grazo wanting to do something for the people who were continuing to support the brand through the direct-to-consumer channel. It wasn't free. It was an initiative that we as a team decided to invest in. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's a way to strengthen the relationship with a brand partner we really love, but it's also generating word of mouth. So the customers who have proven to other people that they've spent money with the brand are talking about this in their group chats. They're posting pictures. It's That's something you can directly measure. But increasingly, we built a process. So now that we know that that works, it's something that's pretty easy to repeat. And it becomes one of those ways you can expand your marketing mix without driving yourself totally nuts. Right.
1: What is your... I mean. The idea of, you know, I feel like the reason partly why we even started the CPG line is because when I did run the brick and mortar, I think we had like every product launch that there was from like 2013 until 2020. Right. And, you know, I didn't know what an activation was until, I don't even know if that was a term until it became a term. But, you know, I was like, oh, you mean like a party? <laughs> you like, no, an activation like, okay. Um, there was a lot more, you know, dinners and events. And we did some of the most amazing events. We were, we were Casper's first event and we had a breakfast in bed party and everyone wore pajamas and we had mattresses on the, on the floor. And we did, um, Instacart's first event and Siggy's first event. And we did one for farm to people where people put, things in their basket. And then they got delivered to their house later because they use this app. Like it was so cool. This totally. sort of, you know, stuff. What, what do you, what's your take on events?
3: Events are a great distribution point, but I want people to remember they don't have to look like a heavy handed production that's expensive Mm -hmm. exactly the way you mentioned the real opportunity I think are are two things one leverage events that are already happening and ask Mm -hmm. if you can contribute to them if you have a product Mm -hmm. that can be included in a menu or part of a gift bag or adding to the ambiance, you can be you can have any way to get involved and if you can ask someone if you're hosting anything in the next quarter we'd love to support it and expect nothing in return, it's a really easy way to start a conversation. And whether or not it's the right fit, at least you have an open dialogue about what could happen next. The other thing to remember is brands are stronger together. And increasingly, I'm seeing brands share, collaborate collaborate on product development, but also all the way down to sharing operational efficiencies. and. Last summer, there was this running joke in one of my marketing slacks that we had a frenemy network and we were not sharing directly competitive insights, Mm -hmm. but we were really truly rising tide, raises all boats style, just interested in everyone helping each other. So to that end, I was working with a company that was really comfortable approaching other brands as affiliates. And Mm -hmm. instead of drop shipping, we just started to be really open about, Supporting a particular set of other brands. So, in that same way, co branding an event, doing something together, splitting the investment, Mm -hmm. and making sure that you're sharing insights with each other after is a way to reduce the effort that goes into an event. But also, positioning wise, Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of cool. Consumers are pretty savvy these days. And I think when they see brands work together, like brand friends. Totally. I I created a whole brand friends newsletter for one of my clients. And that's Mm -hmm. a completely different email segment. And it goes out to every brand we've ever worked with. And it's also our place to say, here's what we have coming up in the next quarter. If anyone's interested in talking about it, give us a call. It's Mm -hmm. also where we give away perks. If we get excess product and we want to say that we get a humongous delivery of a certain type of cooking pan and we want right. to have like a cooking party. It's a great way to promote that stuff, but it's a different audience that needs to be treated differently. And it yep. really reduces the, the burden of events.
1: All right. Last question. So your pie chart says seating. Example hex clad, founder, team driven example. AG is that athletic greens, athletic greens. I love by the way. And Graza Then team dev days. I want to know what that is retention events be everywhere olipop and lofty lofty i've never heard of lofty and then audience a focused audience and (laughs) hoka
3: hoka and whoop
1: okay so really really quickly like one to two minute quickly what are these things I, I did not expect these to be the pie chart, to be
3: to Oh, be okay. Well, yeah. I'll keep my answer short so you can tell me what you thought would be on here. Okay. So these these are ways that companies can grow. And all of these are initiatives that have both acquisition and retention implications. Mm-hmm. And underneath each, I gave a brand that I look to to see a sort of best-in-class commitment to that. These are things that have been core to their brand since they launched. And they mm-hmm. are just marketing philosophies. If you're making a, a marketing plan... List these out as your channels and make sure that you are at least using it as a checklist to say, are we doing something that supports this philosophy and how does it support acquisition and retention? What is a team dev day? Team dev day is something that happens once a month. Mm -hmm. Every person on the marketing team is responsible for bringing two things to a meeting. One is something they saw that they want to put on everyone's radar And then something that they think the team should start doing or a marketing initiative they should explore or pay attention to. Keeping Mm -hmm. it that simple because one, it keeps the team focused on what's happening next and what's relevant in the customer's lives. And two, it builds that muscle of being constant, constantly studying, being in the practice of studying and two, that muscle of asking yourself why, because you can't say anything out loud unless you answer the question And why should we all care? And why would our consumers care?
1: Ooh, are we starting to do that? I think we should. Yeah, no, we are. (laughs) There you go. Yes, you are. (laughs) Amazing, amazing. Um, Grace, thank you so much for coming on. I kind of want to like take the notes that you wrote and put them as like a, you know, what is it called?
3: Show notes, add them. Uh, No,
1: but you know, like um, how people post like, you know what I'm talking about. It's like five ways to da da da. And oh, you, yeah. You know, with a carousel. Yeah, this there you go. How technologically sound I am. Um, also, I just want everyone to know I think I met my favorite person when Grace told me that she travels with a roll up whiteboard. <laughs> um, were you excited to see the whiteboard in our office? So excited. It's yeah. something every team needs. Yeah. Because you don't need to travel with yours when you come here. <laughs> Thank you God. Can just come and use ours. Um, Grace, thank you so much for coming on. It was amazing as I thought it would be.
3: Thank you. This is so great. I hope people find a lot of value in it.
1: Yes, I think they will. And Liam, thank you as always for your patience and for engineering. Um, Everyone, uh, people, you all really liked the uh, butcher box interview, Mike. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. That got a lot of love. I finally learned how to see how many people are listening. And it's a lot.
3: Mike gets Um, a lot. We love him.
1: Yeah. Um, And appreciate everything. And I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.